0: This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Start at Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Angela Sutherland is the co-founder and CEO of Yumi. This company is redefining the future of baby food with freshly made, nutritional, and science-backed delivered meals. It is now the fastest-growing D2C kids' food brand in the country. Angela was formerly a director at Sierra Constellation Partners, a private equity firm, and an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. She's a graduate of Toyota's management program and has a degree in mathematics from Brown University. This is an impressive woman. And when I started interviewing her, I had to know, how did you go from having a mathematics degree to launching a baby food company? It all started when she became pregnant with her first child, and it all comes back to the math, which is really cool. To grow her company, there was a lot to be done, and it was more than just about the food. As we listen, Angela is going to walk us through her journey and talk to us about raising funds, about understanding your customer, and the things that you can focus on to start scaling your brand. Let's listen in. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So right before we got started, I was asking you about the brand name and I'm kind of in love with it. So it is <laughs> pronounced you me, but
1: tell me about it. Yeah, definitely. So we chose the name you me because there's a you and a me in parenting. But if you mispronounce it, it's also yummy and we're food. So we thought it was a really great way to have people... Like think about us as a yummy food, but also get to know the brand better and then get to know us.
0: That's so clever. I love it. So there's a ton of baby food out there. Take me way back in the beginning when you had your first baby and you were just not okay with the options that were on the shelves.
1: Yeah, definitely. So going way back, my kids now are four and six. And so this is my first pregnancy. I got pregnant and I started learning about you know, what am I supposed to be doing? What's important? And I found that scientists widely consider nutrition in the first 1000 days to be the most important factor in development and like the most important time of nutrition in your life. And that's because it has you no know, sort of outsized effects. This is a period of life that's considered epigenetic. So you have your genetics, and this is a period of life that can actually alter that. So alter the expression of your genes. In that can happen in many ways. But one of those main ways is how much nutrition you have, like how how many nutrients you really have. And so that's Mm -hmm. widely known amongst the medical community. That's why your doctor prescribes prenatal vitamins. And that is why formula is regularly a good drug. But it's really not that talked about in the parent community. Uh, and So I didn't really know about it. And so It was eye-opening to me. I started really like geeking out about it. And then on top of that, I started looking at what was at the shelf. And what I found was it didn't speak to me as an average consumer. Like it's something that I personally didn't want to eat. Like I didn't want to have these shelf-stable options. I didn't want to eat that. And because I didn't want to eat what was out there, I found myself looking and sort of doing those analyses. You're talking about a time also when there were, way more fresh dog food companies than there were baby fresh baby food companies and how so, crazy is that yeah it's crazy because you're like well okay so clearly like, this is a consumer habit but this was a like a sort of segment of food that just wasn't addressed and you know something I started talking to my co-founder now my friend Evelyn at the time we Started realizing that a lot of our friends were sort of opting out entirely. They're starting opting out of the out of what was commercially made and started yeah. making everything at home. And that's tough.
0: I yeah. did it with my purse, and it is so much work.
1: <laughs> oh, it's so much work, and it's also crazy that you do it. You know what I'm mean? like, I did it too, and that's actually where this comes from. Is this like right. I can't believe how much work it is for something so simple. Why does it take me this whole time to meal plan and basically just steam carrots and like mash sweet potato? It was so much more time and more thought and energy for something that was absolutely something that could have been available, just wasn't. And I started realizing it was because all of these people, these parents felt like what was at the grocery store didn't fit them anymore. It just didn't Mm -hmm. work for them anymore. And so they actually opted out at a time when they're the busiest. When your kids start eating salads, that's pretty much either when you start going back to work or they're, you know, sitting up and crawling. And it is a lot of work to do, Mm -hmm. right? And so that is simultaneously the same time that you have to feed them. And to choose something that was so labor intensive and cumbersome at that same time, I felt was mind boggling. And it really just shows how strapped these people felt. Like there wasn't another option. There wasn't a good option they felt comfortable with. And so they would rather go through the grind of making it. (laughs) And I think it was sort of obvious to me that there was this huge product gap. And what we felt like was even more exciting was this ability to speak to the consumer as a brand. Like what is the brand now that people can trust and identify with and feel like has their back And that was what we wanted to build.
0: I love it. And I mean, I think that's what every brand should aspire to build, right? You clearly have a problem and you've come up with a solution. So tell me a little bit about your background. Did you have a culinary background? You were just Mm -hmm. playing with these things in the kitchen and you decided, hey, this should be a company.
1: Yeah. So funny enough, I have a math background, so I was not a chef or or like a really anything close to the culinary arts. I was a math major, and then I went into investment banking, and then I went into private equity. So I really had um, more of a business background, but what it comes from is a lot of this is me geeking out. So there was a lot of spreadsheets and science and realizing (laughs) what was good and bad and how many nutrients you could get and how do you titrate to the right recipe so that your kid gets the right nutrients. And I felt that that is actually what you want a company to do. Like I Mm -hmm. want a company to be geekier than I am to do all the work. So I don't have to, I love that. And that's where like my biggest passion was around is like, how do you make something difficult, easy?
0: Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, every entrepreneur should have that mindset for sure. So you and Evelyn had this conversation, you know, this is gold what were the first steps that you took to actually making it into a legitimate business?
1: Well, the first step is leaping. So the first step is quitting your job. It's (laughs) it's changing your path. And I think that sounds obvious, but it is also the most monumental. It is Mm -hmm. the scariest point. You know, you have a place of comfort and you are choosing to move into something uncomfortable. And so to me, I'm always so proud of people I know that just decide that step in their life, whether it's switching jobs or moving something else. It's very difficult to make that decision. And that's step number one, like be brave and go into that uncomfortable place. And then after that, it's, and before that, it's a lot of game planning. It's a lot of what does the business model look like? Is this the right one? So that's also before you quit, obviously. But it's like, you know, there's tons of that happening at the same time when you leave your job is to make sure that that's airtight and then you have to figure out whether or not you're going to bootstrap it or you're going to fundraise and what's the best path mm-hmm. and all of that you have to weigh the pros and cons of um, we chose to fundraise and part of that was there's been a lot of sort of pop-up mom-and-pop shops of local food and it ends up not working out like the economics of that aren't as good because you need scale to make this accessible to many people, you know, right. otherwise it becomes, you know, private chef and that's just un- inaccessible to most people. So if we want not
0: available, that's not yeah. the best business model.
1: That's right. So it's a business model. And I think you know, definitely people like to have that kind of business, but what we wanted was to really make a difference. And so we wanted to become the next big company that does this, you know, you know, sort of Health and wellness for children and food options for kids. And to do that, you needed scale to do that. And so we chose to fundraise to be able to get to that scale faster and be able to offer those prices faster.
0: So, talk to me a little bit about fundraising because this is like the white whale of the startup industry. You know, when people want to fundraise, it's really scary. They don't know how to go about and do it. How did you secure your first round of funds?
1: Well, I think that's a you know another part of it. It's like just swallowing your pride a lot. So the first round was friends and family. Okay. You have to call everybody you know and ask them for money. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually something I highly recommend almost to everybody because you have to be so comfortable with your idea that you're willing to risk someone who cares about, like money. Mm-hmm. It's like, do I feel like this person... Is they're putting their trust in me? Am I going to do well by them? And I think that it's like a, almost a really good thing to be like held sort of like sense of accountability, right? Yeah. So even now today, I worry about any personal person I know who put a check in. I would never want to lose their money. Of it, yeah, of course. And so I think it's like a really good place to start. So even if it's a small amount and not even going to scale your business, there's a sense of accountability there that sort of holds your your feet to the fire. Okay, I think that's really great advice. So, what comes next? And then a lot of it is just pitching. And I think it's funny, but you have to be comfortable with no's. You know, there's a thousand no's for every one, yes. And so, right. you know, you have to just be comfortable in adapting. So, learning from every no, trying to change your model or change the pitch to what you think they said that resonated. Maybe they were right about some part of it right? They're definitely wrong for saying no, obviously. But like, (laughs) what did they say in that, like you could use for your next one. And so it's just about like continuing iterating until you get to where it's solid, solid pitch, and you have a solid idea and a solid deck. And I think you just have to be comfortable with a bunch of no's.
0: Absolutely. What was the first big round that you raised? Was it venture backed?
1: Yeah. So our first big round was Venture Backed. It was our seed. And I was pregnant at the time. Your second one? Yeah, it was my second one. It was pre-COVID and you had to see each other in person. And it was really intimidating having to go in there pregnant. Um, Um, And I think there's a lot of opinions in that moment that you have to navigate. You you have mm -hmm. to sort of navigate what you think that they think about you what the time you're going to take off or what do you need? Just all of these things at the same time, asking them to finance the company. So it was intense and it was also awesome because we raised a big run around and we were very successful in it. And I think we were able to prove that if you believe in it enough and if it's a sound business model and you have enough conviction and enough you know, data points, then a lot of those things are maybe just more in your mind than they are in reality.
0: I love that. I love that. So you have this first big round, you have the seed round. Now, what does your growth plan look like? Because when you get funded like that, they want to see high growth for high return. So what were the first things that you did?
1: Well, I think a lot of this is setting expectations for you and the investor on what you hope to achieve with Mm -hmm. financing. So every round is a different objective and it's not always revenue at all cost. It's product market fit or it's scalability, like good unit economics. And then it's also then growth. And so all of those different things matter at different times. And you're going to use that money to focus on one of those or a couple of those things, but not necessarily all of those things. And setting that expectation off the bat is very helpful from a fundraising perspective because if you say i'm going to take this money and i'm going to get a product market fit then you're not necessarily trying to prove that you have really good margins yet or you're not necessarily trying to prove out that you have the highest growth rate on the planet it's more deep penetration and the data around that and does this work it does this scale so depending on the round and depending on what expectations we set, we would do different things and so when you say like, how do we grow it sort of varied on the time. And so from the beginning, the first for us was making the best product market fit. And so okay. a lot of that was just building out the team in regions and understanding like, what do people want? <laughs> you know, like what product can we get? Can we use data from the traffic, the what they're ordering and understand more about this product to sort of make a much better product in the future. So tailor the product to to the needs of consumers. And I think that was really important from the beginning. And I think it's what has made us very, very successful in in launching is sort of deep loyalty. And I think a lot of that again was like the sort of investments we put into making a product that people actually wanted. Again, this is also a specific group. And so I'll like caveat this with parents are incredibly picky as they should be, but this (laughs) is the most precious being in their life. And so we felt like if we scaled too quickly without improving the product, you would sort of lose all that goodwill. And this is something, a category that you really needed that goodwill. Absolutely.
0: So when you're talking about finding the product market fit for this yeah. seed round, what were some of the things that you did just from the get-go? So you said you had to build the team. Were mm-hmm. you running a lot of market studies? Were you doing things on social media? You, know, you have to get sales in order to get feedback on the product. So what were some of the first things that you engaged in?
1: All of the above. <laughs> so I think a lot of it is, you know, you're... We like deeply invested in customer service. Um, okay. Pretty early, I think that was again part of our consumer base and what we thought they wanted, and we could be responsive to. Just to do a couple things, which is you know listen and learn, and then also have like a tighter feedback loop. We knew what they wanted faster, and we could change things faster. And so that was the beginning of us aggregating data. We started aggregating a lot of data back then on likes and dislikes by age, by region understanding stages. Again, these are all of the early building blocks of what you're going to use later to tailor the product differently and make a better product market fit. And so we felt like having more data points was important. So again, we scaled up our, our customer service team, had a lot of more data points, a lot more questions and that kind of thing. And so it's sort of customer surveys also with customer outreach, just all that in one sort of team. And that, again, was like really, really important for us. The other part is digital. You know, it's your, we're in a digital world. And so you have just like, what are they clicking on? And what do they like? And how do they interact with a service? And how often do they use a the service? And just learning from that. So
0: it sounds like there were so many data points. You must have been in heaven at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> it actually is great. And I think, again, from being a math person, we built out Something that I think is really unique and I think really important for a lot of brands now is that we have access to understand so much about our consumers. And I think consumers want that more. They demand that more. It's not a general service, it's personalized. It feels something like they exactly want. And I think we have an opportunity to do that and fulfill that. And I almost think that it's like, you know, incumbent on all brands now to sort of try to think how to do that better.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I always talk to people about how our habits as consumers have changed Mm -hmm. and we really purchase for convenience or connection. And it's your job as the leaders in the brand to make sure that you're forging that connection by truly knowing your customer and providing for them.
1: No, it's absolutely right. You can always have a product that works for a moment. But to really be something that lasts, you actually have to make that connection.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful. So, talk to me how your role has changed, and also Evelyn too. Where does Evelyn right. come in as the co-founder? Because yeah. you've been doing this as a team from the, the very beginning.
1: Absolutely. I mean, she's the other half of my brain. She was <laughs> like the English major to my math major. Um, she was a journalist the whole time. Like her, you know, decades before we started the company. So she takes on a lot of like, so brand imagery, like tone, all of those components that are obviously so important to the brand. And this is kind of where we meld together pretty well, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, I was in charge of, I mean, early days, it was like, you know, you wear all the hats. And so you're in charge of like, you know, I was a COO, CFO, CEO, you know, you're all the things. And, you know, she's CMO and CBO, like all the other parts. And so, you know, you're taking on all those roles because Not only do you have to, you almost should to understand your business really well. And so it allows you to understand all of the nuances of the company. And so even though now we've replaced ourselves in nearly every one of those roles, we have an intimate understanding of what they require.
0: Hey, everybody. It's Shauna. I just wanted to take a quick break from this episode to remind you that there's lots of good stuff happening over at StartupRenegades.com. First, you can enter your email address, join the community and get notified of discounts and specials that our featured founders are giving exclusively to the Startup Renegades community. Also, get notified when we have Founder Firesides, where we put the founders in the hot seats and give you the opportunity to ask them the questions in a one-on-one environment. Plus, you can join the Startup Renegades Business Workshop. This is a four-week accelerator for founders who need custom strategy, actionable next steps, and a true support system in order to scale. Is that you? If so, come join us at StartupRenegades.com and let's get started. That's really important for founders and we definitely kind of glorify the hustle and the startup life, but... Every founder that I talk to is, says, in the beginning, it was just me and I did all of the things. Or <laughs> I found a co founder and them and I did all the things. And I think uh, when I spoke to Annie Ruggles, she was saying that it was like adorable chaos or something. And I thought that was just such a fun way to put it.
1: Yeah. It's also so much strategy during that period. You have all of these challenges that arise that you have to navigate. And being a smaller team allows you to be more nimble in that. You can change course and make different decisions. And the larger you get, it's the structure that keeps them aligned. And so it, it becomes more rigid. Just you know, And I think what's exciting about being a startup, and I, we're still a startup side, so we're not even that rigid. I just think it's like you, you can see it more so now than you could at the very early days.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How important do you think that is in the beginning days to just have that flexibility? Did you find times where you had, you know, the data came in, it wasn't what you thought and you had to pivot certain things?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you need enormous flexibility at the beginning. Uh, You have to listen to what the data is telling you, you know, and you have to change, add things, subtract things, pivot in other ways. Just way more than you think. An example of this is in our very earliest days, we just had a bunch of flavors. And we thought that you would want just like to have these bunch of flavors. And then you could almost like a retail, like at the grocery store. Right. And I didn't think anybody would want us to do the single flavors. I thought, oh, you can do that on your own. You don't really need us to do that. And we found that people really do want us to help them. They want us to help them understand when you introduce it, how you introduce it, how early days, all the way up to the end. And to be honest, it's, I would want that too. I just didn't think it at the time. We didn't think that at the time, right? Mm -hmm. It's like stuff that you realize happens and you end up having to make more things and different choices. That's just like a really obvious example of something that we would, if you were at retail or didn't do D2C, didn't have the data you would have just kept on that path for a long mm-hmm. time. It changes who you are fundamentally when you're able to like, say, I'm going to make this whole other product line or I'm going to do these other things, you know, and it's just again like that's a very simplified example of something where data informed us how to pivot and what to change and like what to change in our marketing messaging and what to change in our product offering. And so you just have to be more nimble at the beginning stages. I mean, I would think always really, because you never know what's going to come back and like, you're going to hear and you have to change again.
0: So the company has evolved quite a bit. So you do have those single flavors that everybody Mm -hmm. wants, but you also have some really fun, unique ones. What made you decide to offer those types of things? They're definitely not combinations or flavors that you will see on the grocery store
1: shelves. That's the beauty of going to, you to see. We want to give you a reason why you choose us versus something else. And it's a flavor that you wouldn't necessarily make at home, or if you did, it would take you a long time. It's also mm-hmm. flavors that you, know, you might not get locally to you, or you might not see often, or it's flavors that you want to expose your kid to, but don't know how And the other part of this is like the vast amount of variety that you could get in comparison to, you know, the six flavors that you'll probably get at the store of any one brand. Like you can get so much variety with us. And, you know, again, like that's what's awesome. Like when I remember I was cooking for my first kid, I... Gave them the same thing like four times a week. (laughs) You know, it was like, you know, how many sweet potatoes and broccoli mixes can I make? Yeah. Or like pulling it out of my freezer and just using the same ones that I froze. Again, like it's like having optionality is... Amazing! You get to expose your kid to lots of flavors. You get to they get to try things that you know you otherwise wouldn't expose them to. Um, they become much less picky eaters. All of those things are great, and so we wanted to lean in on that because we have the ability to do this, and that's part of the experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I remember those days with my little one and the ice cube trays yeah. full of steamed carrots and apple yeah. mush that I made. It was definitely an interesting experience. So what is the evolution of the company now? What's next for Yumi?
1: We're currently the fastest growing g to Kids brand in the country. So we're already feeding over 2% of American children. And for us, expansion means many things. You have the ability to create new product launches. You have also... New places to go, like more parents to feed and more babies to feed. We're excited about it. Sort of it's just like now, we have proven the platform and have this dedicated base. We can see how far this goes. With that, we just hired our first ever CFO. She's this powerhouse MD and partner from Goldman Sachs and investment banking group, and she's coming in to help us with that growth. And I think, and like the sky's the limit. And we're just excited to see where that takes us.
0: Oh my gosh, for sure. So looking back, are there any particular growth strategies? So you talked to me about funding and you talked to me about building the team, but were there any particular marketing strategies, growth strategies that you employed that really helped you scale in the beginning?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of this is tied into like the data part, which is like finding who your real customer is. I think every founder I talked to at the very beginning says it's for everybody. And the chances of that being true are like zero. You know, it's not for everybody. Nothing is for everybody. And so finding out who it's for and understanding them, your messaging is going to resonate better because it's not a one size fits all. It's like a right size for you. And doing that homework and understanding who it's actually for Is still fundamental to our growth because every time we have new customers and new categories and new things, it's an opportunity for us to learn more and like who these people are and what do they want from us and what can we do differently and what can we launch. And so, you know, it's a never ending process, but I think it's fundamental to driving growth because it'll ultimately decrease customer acquisition costs, it'll do so many things for you. So I think that's actually one of the most key things that we've done.
0: I mean, driving down customer acquisition cost is big for everybody, (laughs) I would say. Yeah. That's dreams, right? That's the goal right there. So... When you have your messaging tight and you're just continually digging down and learning about the customer, where were you putting that messaging in the beginning?
1: Yeah. I mean, multiple places. Again, one of the things that are really unique about our category is how viral the parent community is. And Mm. so they just need reasons to talk about you. It's like, If you ask a parent what diaper they used or how do they go, you know, put their kid to sleep or, you know, any of these things, they always have answers, even if they had a kid 10 years ago. Yeah. And so how do you become one of the brands that they recommend? That comes back to when I say, if you know your customer really, really well, you can find out how to become one of the brands in their life that they feel committed to, that they want to recommend. And Honestly, I would say that that's the golden dream for any company is to become a company that is organic and viral. And if you can do that, it'll ultimately make you less dependent on sort of digital growth.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's the dream. So now it's time for the big question. What does being a startup renegade mean to you?
1: So I think what is so great about being a part of this community is it really, you know, you have this sort of sense that we all had this moment of courage to sort of drive away and break from everything else and take about a bunch of chances, take chances on yourself, take chances on your idea, you know, and believe fundamentally that you can change something. You can change the world. You can change a product category. You can change nutrition for kids. That You have a hand in that. And I love being part of a community that believes that in themselves.
0: I love that. Angela, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell listeners where they can find you?
1: You can find us at helloyumi.com or Instagram at at Yumi. All right.
0: That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade.